0: Welcome to Bo Talks, a podcast by Banking on Women, which is a student society at the University of Melbourne. We are dedicated to empowering,
1: educating and encouraging our members in the financial and professional services industries.
0: Bo would like to respectfully acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which we will be recording this podcast on. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Talks. Today, we are joined by John Handley, who is a Professor of Finance at the University of Melbourne, specialising in the teaching and research of corporate finance, valuation and derivative securities. He'll be providing some insight into what valuation involves and help us unpack the recent financial news around Square's takeover of Afterpay. Thanks for your time today, John. Um, So to start us off, could you tell us a bit about who you are and what your passions are?
1: Yeah, thanks, Lucy. And hi, everyone. Um, As Lucy said, I'm a professor of finance and um, I've been at the university now for uh, 28 years. I specialise in corporate finance and valuation. I teach uh, subjects at uh, both undergraduate and postgraduate level. And I've also been very fortunate uh, over the last 10 years or so to have taught at both Columbia and NYU in New York. Occasionally, I do a bit of consulting to governments and corporates on the side. With regards to passions, I guess I love my work. Um, Finance is an area which is continually evolving. Uh, It certainly has wide practical application. And it has strong theoretical foundations, which allows you to really dig deep and get your hands dirty. Uh, looking into some very interesting financial problems uh, as they pop up over time. Outside of work, I guess my passion is the beach. I love the beach. I grew up in Newcastle, just north of Sydney, um, and spent a lot of time looking at the ocean. So I really think, you know, you could say that I I have salt water in my veins.
0: Thanks, John. Um, I definitely agree with you in the sense that the beach is... awesome place to be and that's cool that you grew up around there. So as a professor of finance at the university you've recently been in charge of a subject called Essentials of Corporate Valuation. It would be great if you could explain what corporate valuation exactly is and where students might hear or read about this in the news. Sure.
1: Valuation is one of the fundamental concepts of finance and it essentially asks the question What is an asset worth? Now, corporate valuation examines this question in the context of corporate and similar entities. Specifically, what are the key concepts and methodologies used in valuing companies and other business interests, such as listed and unlisted stocks, standalone projects, joint ventures, private equities, startups, etc. etc.? Now, perhaps. Uh, Corporate valuation is most visible in news stories which relate to the stock market, whether here in Australia or overseas. So, for example, whilst a company's share price is one estimate of its value at that time, the key issue is whether that share price actually makes sense, having regards to what the company does and what its underlying business fundamentals look like.
0: Great. Thanks for that explanation. I'm sure our listeners will find that very helpful. And so while we do have a lot of commerce listeners out there, many students might not be too familiar with finance or valuation. So we thought it would be good to begin with a couple of specific questions. Um, Firstly, what is the difference exactly between a takeover and an M&A deal?
1: Yeah, M&A stands for mergers and acquisitions. And these are big strategic transactions in which the ownership of a company, or the ownership of part of a company such as a subsidiary or a division or a business unit is transferred to another company or some other entity. Now a takeover is perhaps the most common type of an M&A deal and it refers to when one company wants to acquire another company in its entirety. Sometimes the two companies agree that they would be better off operating as a combined entity rather than operating as as two separate entities, in which case the takeover is called a merger.
0: Great. I'm sure that will probably clarify a few questions that even commerce students have faced, as I've um, definitely been asked by some of my friends what the difference between a takeover or a merger is. Um, The next question we've got is, are shares in Australian companies the same thing as shares in US companies?
1: Generally, yes, but there's one important difference if the company is listed on a stock exchange, and this difference is not necessarily well understood um, uh, in Australia. So, um, you know, fundamentally, if we look at ownership or uh, equity rights, those ownership or equity rights in Australian companies are called ordinary shares, Uh, whereas in the US, uh, ownership rights are called common stock. Now, in both cases, the owners are called shareholders or stockholders. So those terms can be used uh, interchangeably. Now, equity ownership carries two main benefits. It carries a right to vote. In other words, it gives you a right to say uh, what happens uh, in the running of the company. And it also gives you a right to share in the profits generated by the company. In other words, if the company does well, uh, you do well. You receive dividends, the share price goes up, et cetera but if the company doesn't do well, then obviously uh, you don't do as well as if it did well in the first place. Now, the difference uh, that I've uh, indicated uh, between Australian companies and some US companies relates to differences in voting structure. Now, in particular, in Australia, ordinary shares in companies which are listed on a stock exchange, and in Australia that is the Australian Securities Exchange or ASX for short, they carry one vote per share. Now, this is a very important principle because what this means is that voting interests are aligned with ownership interests. For example, if you own 10% of the ordinary shares in a company, then you have 10% of the votes. If instead you own 5% of the ordinary shares in a company, you have 5% of the votes. Now, in the US, there are some listed companies which have not one class of common stock, but rather they have two classes of common stock. And typically, those two classes are referred to as Class A common stock and Class B common stock. And the main difference between them concerns the votes. In particular, Class A stock typically carries one vote per share, whereas Class B stock typically carries 10 votes per share. Now, this may sound unusual, insofar as why would you want to have different classes of shares having different numbers of votes? Well, what it means is that the owners or the holders of the Class B common uh, stock, who are usually the founders of the company, this voting structure allows them to keep voting control of the company as the company grows over time. So, for example, if you look at Square Inc., which we're going to talk about um, shortly, uh, Square uh, is a big US company and it currently has about 460 million shares of common stock on issue. And that's split into 398 million class A stock and 62 million of class B stock. Now, the main founder, there were two founders of Square. The main founder is Jack Dorsey of Twitter fame. He currently holds 49 million of the class B stock. Okay, so he holds most of the Class B stock, and he holds none of the Class A stock. So what that means is that, given that there are 460 million shares of stock on issue, and Jack owns 49 million of the Class B stock, then he holds, or he owns about 11% of the company. But because the Class B stock carry 10 votes per share instead of one vote per share, Jack actually has about 48% of the votes.
0: Awesome. Thanks for highlighting some of the differences there. I guess moving slightly away from underlying finance concepts, we've seen a lot of news lately around buy now, pay later type companies. From a financial point of view, is buy now, pay later the same thing as using a credit card?
1: Lucy, this is a great question because um, it illustrates how something can be considered to be one thing from from a financial point of view, whilst it can be considered to be another thing from a legal or a regulatory point of view. Now, as I'm sure many of the listeners uh, would be aware, buy now, pay later is a recent innovation in financial markets which allows customers to buy goods today and receive them today but pay for them later, usually by way of a series of instalments. Now, credit cards, of course, they've been around for a long time, and they similarly allow you to buy goods now and pay for them later. So clearly, buy now, pay later arrangements and credit cards perform the same financial function. In other words, they have the same financial purpose. They allow you to walk into a store or go online and buy something with money which is not yours. This fundamentally is the definition of credit. But interestingly, whilst credit cards are considered to be a form of consumer credit for Australian regulatory purposes, buy now, pay later arrangements are not. So the important distinction seems to be that buy now, pay later providers do not charge cust- customers interest if you pay it off on time. And even if you are late, then you are still not charged interest, but instead you are charged a late fee. Now, from a finance perspective, whether this extra charge is called a late fee or whether it's called interest is irrelevant. In both cases, if you are late with your instalment payment, you need to pay an extra amount to the buy now, pay later provider but the regulators seem to currently be taking a different view. For any uh, listeners who are interested, there was a a good article in the March 2021 edition of the Reserve Bank of Australia Bulletin, which looks at the developments in the buy-now-pay-later market.
0: Great. Thank you for clarifying the distinction between the two and um, for suggesting that article from the RBA. I'm sure our listeners will find that quite helpful. I guess that brings us to today's main topic of conversation, which is the recent $39 billion proposed takeover of Afterpay by Square, which is the biggest M&A deal in Australia's history. Would you be able to give a brief overview of the deal?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, this is indeed a huge deal. It is a humongous deal. Um, early in August this year, so uh, so that's... Um, uh, less or about four weeks ago, um, Afterpay announced its plan to merge with Square. So Afterpay is currently listed on the Australian Securities Exchange. Square is currently listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And in fact, both companies made an announcement about this uh, takeover plan, this merger plan, at around about the same time. Now, both companies are important global players in what we could call the evolving FinTech space. Afterpay is a global leader in buy now, pay later. Uh, Square, on the other hand, is a global leader in digital payment systems. Both companies want to expand their existing FinTech operations, and they want to develop new ones. And they've put their heads together and uh, decided that it makes strategic sense to join forces. Now, Afterpay is currently worth about 40 uh, billion Australian dollars. Square's currently worth about 125 billion US dollars, which is equivalent uh, to about 175 billion Australian dollars. So Square's about four and a half times as big as Afterpay. So back in early August, the company's entered into what's called a scheme of arrangement. And under this scheme of arrangement, which is a legally binding contract, um, Square has agreed to buy all the shares in Afterpay in exchange for shares in Square. In particular, Afterpay shareholders will be offered 0.375 shares in Square, and in particular, that'll be um, 35 sorry, 0.375 shares of Square Class A common stock for each afterpay ordinary share that they own. Now, there's lots of steps in the process still to go, but essentially the two companies and their advisors will work on the deal over the next few months and then a formal proposal will go to afterpay shareholders for approval. That should be early in the new year. If they vote yes, then the proposal under the australian corporations law has to go to the court for approval and assuming it says yes then the deal should be wrapped up by the end of first quarter of next year there's a lot of information in the deal um, and again if any listeners are interested in finding out more details you can download a copy of the scheme it's a public document you can either get it from the ASX website just look up afterpay it's uh, its stock exchange code is APT, and then you look in the announcement section. Or alternatively, um, Afterpay has an investor relations section on its website, and you'll be able to get the document from there.
0: Thanks for that overview, John. Um, I guess following on from that, what sort of factors would have been considered in reaching that valuation of 39 billion Australian dollars?
1: Yeah, $39 billion is a very, very big number. And it was really based on a comparison of the market price of Square and the market price of Afterpay at the time they signed the deal. So as I said, Square, common stock, trades on the New York Stock Exchange, and Afterpay, ordinary shares, trade on the ASX. So around the time they signed the deal, Square was trading on the New York Stock Exchange, at about 250 US dollars per share, which means that 0.375 square shares would be worth about 95 US dollars. So because of this 0.375 square shares for each after pay share exchange ratio, Square is effectively offering to pay about 95 US dollars worth of square shares for each afterpay share, and when you take into account the total number of afterpay shares that are on issue, this is equivalent to a total consideration of about 39 uh, billion Australian dollars to buy the whole company.
0: Thanks, John. I guess following on from that last question, why do you think such a valuation has been given to a company which was only founded back in 2014 and has never made a profit?
1: Yeah, that has never made a profit is an interesting one. Um, well, it's it's one of a number of interesting valuation issues that are associated with this deal. As you said, Lucy, the, the firm was founded um, as a startup back in 2014. Uh, it, it very rapidly... Um, Uh, moved to uh, a listed company on the Australian Stock Exchange. Its shares began trading on the Australian Stock Exchange in May 2016. Uh, Those shares initially started trading at a dollar each. The share price is currently around $130 per share, uh, which gives Afterpay a market value of about $40 billion, which is very similar to uh, the value of... Uh, the offer from Square. So this growth in Afterpay's stock price in such a short period of time is absolutely nothing short of extraordinary. But as you point out in your question, the company is yet to make a profit. So Afterpay released its annual report for the 12 months to 30 June 2021, actually only a few days ago. And what this report shows is that the company has displayed uh, or, or achieved significant growth in its underlying sales, in its number of active customers, and in its number of active merchants, but it still made a loss after tax of $159 million for the year. So if you look a little bit deeper into the results, what you see is that this loss is after the impact of several significant items which the company identifies as having adversely affected their results. So if you cut them out and you look at the performance for the last 12 months prior to taking those um, uh, items into account, what you see is that after pay generated EBITDA, uh, EBITDA stands for Earnings Before Interest, Tax, Depreciation and Amortisation of $39 million for the last 12 months. Now EBITDA is an important uh, measure of cash flow, uh, which is used in a number of the main popular valuation models uh, used in practice. So what the afterpay results show is that for the last 12 months, okay, so it's only the last 12 12 months, it's, it's, it's not what's going to happen in the future, of course, Afterpay generated EBITDA of $39 million. Now, in comparison, Coles Group, as in Coles Supermarkets, is currently valued at about $24 billion Australian dollars, which is about 60% of Afterpay's market value. But in comparison, Coles generated EBITDA of $3.4 billion, over the last 12 months now 3.4 billion generated by coals is about 90 times the amount of ebitda generated by afterpay so what we have here is the coals generated 90 times as much cash flow in the last 12 months but is valued at only 60% of afterpay so something's going on here Obviously, afterpay and Coles are completely different businesses, but the market is clearly valuing afterpay differently to the way that it's valuing Coles. So by way of a free plug, these are exactly the types of issues that we explore in my third year finance class on corporate valuation. Now, there's one other interesting feature of the afterpay square deal is that afterpay, under this scheme of of arrangement that they've entered into, afterpay will be required by law to engage an independent financial expert to prepare a report which will include an an opinion on whether the deal is in the best interest of afterpay shareholders. In other words, the expert will have to come up with an opinion as to whether this takeover deal is good for afterpay shareholders. Now in doing that, the expert will need to value afterpay and will also need to value Square. So we will be able to see what the independent expert has to say on the value of afterpay and Square when they issue the report.
0: Thanks, John. I personally took your class last semester and it was definitely fascinating looking deeper into certain considerations when valuing companies, so i definitely recommend it to any listeners out there who are interested.
1: Good on you, Lucy.
0: I guess on that note, if listeners were to search up the deal, they might notice some discussion around how the transaction value implies a roughly 30% premium to Afterpay's last closing price prior to the announcement. Could you explain a bit about how this relates to the premium for control in takeovers?
1: Yeah, it's actually it's it's a great question because it's actually the same thing. If one company wants to take over another company, then they normally have to pay what's called a premium for control. And a premium for control is simply an extra amount above the share price of the firm that they wish to buy. Now, Square is offering to pay uh, 95 US dollars or equivalently 125 uh, Australian dollars for each afterpay share. And That price is 30% above what Afterpay's share price was at the time the deal was announced. In other words, when they finalised the terms of the deal, Afterpay shares were trading on the ASX at about $97. And they agreed on a deal through the share exchange which would effectively uh, offer shares worth $125 Australian dollars or 30% above the existing share price at that time for each afterpay share.
0: So moving on, given that the takeover involves a stock swap, as you mentioned earlier, what does this deal um, mean exactly for afterpay shareholders in terms of their ownership in the company now?
1: Yeah, so this, uh, this this is where we can loop back to the earlier point I made about the, the difference in the voting right structures of Australian listed companies and some US listed companies. So first of all, because it's a stock swap, Afterpay will disappear as a separate entity. So Afterpay shareholders are going to exchange, they're going to hand over their shares in Afterpay and in return receive shares in Square. So Afterpay will disappear. Afterpay will disappear from um, the Australian, or from the Australian Securities Exchange, from the ASX, as a separate entity, but Square will continue in existence uh, in the U.S. Now, the shares in Square that will be offered to Afterpay shareholders will take one of two forms, and Afterpay shareholder, each Afterpay shareholder will be able to choose between which one they want. So, first of all. Afterpay shareholders will be able to choose to receive uh, common stock in Square. And those common stock will trade on the New York Stock Exchange. So if you're an Afterpay shareholder and you uh, exchange your shares, your Afterpay shares for Square common stock, you will then own common stock shares which trade in the US. But not all Australian shareholders will want to own equity securities which trade. Uh, in the US, they uh, may prefer to uh, own shares which trade in Australia. Now, in this particular case, the afterpay shareholders will be able to uh, instead receive what's called a square chess depository interest. Okay, so this is this uh, CDI uh, is a special type of security. It will trade on the ASX, but it's strictly not a share. But what it will do is it will allow uh, shareholders to own a security whose value is directly tied to the value of square shares. So in summary, what we're going to have is we're going to have some after pay shareholders who choose to take square common stock, which trades in the US, and some after pay shareholders who will choose to instead take these Square Chess Depository Interests, which will trade in Australia. Now, you may be wondering why Square shares don't just trade on the ASX. That would certainly be easier. But of course, this all gets back to uh, the uh, rules that apply in Australia. And that is, we know that uh, for companies listed in Australia, companies can only issue shares based on, uh, which have one vote per share. Square, we know, has two classes of share or two classes of common stock. The class A, which has one vote per share, the class B, which have 10 votes per share. So square shares are not allowed to be uh, listed on the ASX. So for that reason, we've got these funny alternative uh, securities, these square depository interests, which are not strictly shares, but will effectively mirror what happens with um, Square shares overseas, so so that's the that's the structure. So the other interesting point about this is to see what's going to happen to the shareholders. So on completion, um, it's expected that the old afterpay shareholders will collectively own about eighteen percent of Square, and in this case, Square will 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 consist of the current Square and the existing uh, afterpay as a merged entity now the two main founders of afterpay uh, anthony eisen and nick molner they each currently own about seven percent of afterpay and so they'll each end up owning about 1.25 percent of square so they will do very well now assuming i've done my calculations correctly jack dorsey by virtue of his holding of Class B common stock, he will see his ownership interest in square fall because new new square shares are going to be issued to afterpay shareholders. So his ownership interest is going to fall to about 8.5% of the total number of shares. But because he holds Class B common stock and because those Class B common stock have, extra voting rights insofar as 10 votes per share instead of one vote per share, Jack Dorsey will still control the company with 44% of the votes.
0: Um, Thanks for breaking that all down. I'm sure that will definitely clarify any confusion around why SquareShares aren't being directly listed on the ASX. Um, Another question I had was, I understand the buy now, pay later industry isn't regulated, which brings upon new challenges. Do you see the industry ever becoming regulated and how might this impact the Afterpay Square deal? Yeah,
1: this is is a really important question and it's it's, it's very much a watch this space. Um, There are a number of parties who have looked into this over recent years and will continue to look into this, including the Reserve Bank of Australia and ASIC. Uh, Where it currently stands is that the buy now, pay later in industry is essentially subject to self-regulation as it doesn't fall under the existing regulations which apply to other credit providers. But there are a number of uh, consumer groups out there who have suggested that this really should change. So as I said, watch this space.
0: So the final question I have around the deal is, for those students not studying finance, they might be wondering who exactly works on this deal. Um, Would Square potentially outsource this to an investment banking firm?
1: Absolutely. Um, These types of transactions, these big M&A deals, uh, they typically take months. Sometimes they're successful. Sometimes they fall over in the process. We'll just have to wait and, and, and see. But in the meantime, both companies will move forward, full steam ahead on the deal. Uh, Both Square and Afterpay will engage their own teams of advisors to assist them. Uh, Those teams will consist of investment bankers, lawyers, accountants and other consulting firms to work through all the financial, legal and the accounting aspects of the deal. Um, And as previously mentioned, Afterpay will also have to engage a specialist valuation firm to prepare that independent expert report. Given the size of the deal, it's not surprising to see that two of the top IB firms are involved. Uh, Morgan Stanley is is advising Square and Goldman Sachs is advising Afterpay.
0: Thanks, John. So moving away from Square's plans to acquire Afterpay, a more general question we have for you is what advice do you have for students interested in learning more about valuation or finance and potentially looking to pursue a career in the industry?
1: Yeah, nice one, Lucy. Um, look, you, you can't learn everything at university and you can't learn everything from textbooks. So what I do and, 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 and what my colleagues do is that, you know, we certainly do our best to pass on knowledge and problem-solving skills, uh, which we think you'll need in your careers. But you also need to be aware of what's happening in financial markets and in economic markets in general. And the best way to to, to to gain that knowledge is to do it yourself. So what I suggest you do if you're not already doing it is that you start regularly reading the financial press. Um, I like the Wall Street Journal because uh, it has really extensive coverage of global financial markets. I think the Australian Financial Review is important, obviously because it has um, uh, you know broader coverage um, of uh, of what's happening in Australia. And The Economist, of course, is just a classic publication. So really, you know, my suggestion to you would be, you know, at least once a week, um, you know, from, from first year, you know, don't leave this to third year when you're just starting to apply for graduate jobs. Straight away, um, uh, at least once a week, um, you should start reading the financial press, uh, to keep up to date with current events. Now, importantly, you don't need to read it all. You can't read it all. Just start off with a few stories each time and then build up. And read the stories from different sections. You know, read the stories which are relating to corporate events. Read the stories which are, which are related to interest rate markets. Read the stories which are related to uh, economics. You probably won't understand everything that you read straight away. But each time you do you'll pick up on something and a little bit will stick. And this is the type of information which can be particularly useful when you are sitting sitting, um, in uh, interviews with potential employers.
0: Great. I'm sure that advice will be extremely useful to all our listeners out there who are interested in pursuing a career in finance in the future. So to finish off, the last question I have is, do you have any content recommendations for our audience? So have you been reading, watching or listening to anything interesting lately?
1: Lucy, I have. Um, I've just finished season six of The Walking Dead.
0: Oh, nice.
1: (laughs) Now, Now, I know it's a little bit strange to watch a show about a zombie apocalypse during a global pandemic, but it is a good way to pass some hours during lockdown. So there's just one request I have for you and your listeners. I think I have three or four seasons to go. So please don't email me any spoilers.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to record this episode with us, John. It's been great chatting to you and unpacking various aspects of the recently announced Afterpay Square deal. And you've provided some great insights into what valuation involves. I'm sure following this episode, our listeners will be inspired to look into more exciting news within the finance space. To everyone listening, thank you for joining us and we will be with you next time for another podcast episode.
1: Thank you, Lucy. Thanks, everyone. Stay well.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Bow Talks. Please do follow us on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn at Banking on Women. Thank you, everyone. Bye.